Eavesdrop on Experts, stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Australia is in the midst of both environmental and social crises. With the highest rate of biodiversity loss on Earth, the country is facing an ever-increasing barrage of massive catastrophic wildfires that wreak untold environmental damage, and its first peoples are among the most disadvantaged and disaffected demographic. Associate Professor Michael Sean Fletcher is a descendant of the Wiradjuri and a geographer interested in the long-term interactions between humans, climate, vegetation and landscapes in the Southern Hemisphere with a particular emphasis on how Indigenous burning has shaped the Australian landscape. He is Director of Research Capability at the Indigenous Knowledge Institute, Assistant Dean Indigenous in the Faculty of Science at the University of Melbourne, and a panel member of the Australian Research Council College of Experts. The NAM oration is the University of Melbourne's key address that profiles leading Indigenous peoples from across the world in order to enrich our ideas about possible futures for Indigenous Australia. NAM refers to the country of the Melbourne region. Earlier this year, Michael Sean Fletcher delivered the 2020 NAM oration, titled Our Country, Our Way, How Indigenous People and Knowledge Can Save Australia's Environmental and Social Unravelling. Associate Professor Michael Sean Fletcher sat down for a Zoom chat with Steve Grimwade. Now, you're a physical geographer, and when describing what you do, you often say that you focus on time. Uh, do you want to explain what you mean by that and how are you measuring change over time? Yeah, sure. So geographers essentially just try and understand um, the earth, the patterns and processes that lead to what we see in the earth today. In particular, I look at the physical environment um, and how humans interact with the physical environment. And the dimension when I say time is that I am interested in landscape evolution through time. In particular, you know, say how things like maybe climate or disturbances in South America I've worked on, how volcanic disturbances shape environments, uh, how when people arrive into environments, they shape and, and manage and manipulate environments, and how through time, as you layer the various things that happened on a dynamic earth, such as climate change, different arrival of different species, including humans, different disturbances, all of these sorts of things through time, how they conspire to give us the world we see around us. Um, we're going to use the word country a lot, I reckon, in this conversation. And I'm interested in, in hearing what country means to you and how do you define it? Yeah, so country, I see country as the world around us, what we live in, but also ourselves. Everything is country, so to speak. Um, and this is most pertinent when we think about uh, our involvement in the world around us. And I think it really comes to the fore and, and there's a more nuanced or better way of perceiving the world around us than, say, environment or the built or natural environment in that it recognises there's a reciprocity, not only with humans. I mean, if, if you look at uh, any kind of life science study, the arrival of a species into a system changes that system irrevocably. It doesn't matter what the species is and to more degree to others, you know, uh, there, are, there are these things called keystone species, if you like, that are kind of the anchors of all ecosystem dynamics and there are other sort of more passive introductions and things like that. And particularly given that we are humans and everything is, you know, we try not to be, but everything is rel relative to ourselves. Country recognises the role that and the obligations that people have in the world around them. It doesn't abstract the world from ourselves. It actually embeds us within the world around us and reveals the kind of 
reciprocity or the obligation that we have to the world around us in caring for it and looking after it. And not only that one-way flow, but how caring for and looking after country actually cares for ourselves and looks after us. You know, so it puts us within rather than abstracts us outside of the world around us. I won't skip to the chase and say that perhaps you, you know, uh, we're going to get to a point where we discuss how Australians haven't really come to um, fully embrace country. But we'll get to that. I'm interested in maybe uh, talking about people that do embrace country. Um, what does a healthy uh, embrace of country look like? What does it mean? Well, it really depends. It's a, it's a good question, Steve. It depends. I mean, Australia, for example, is really variable. You know, we've got some really dry deserts. We've got some really high rainfall, rainforests. We've got the tallest flowering plants on earth and actually the tallest tree ever recorded is a eucalyptus regnans in it. So we have this really broad degree of environments. So in terms of what in particular country looks like, it's, it's variable. But what a healthy country, healthy people uh, manifests as is people being out on country, performing their, their roles and their obligations uh, according to their cultural protocols. And if we think about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people, we've been here for 68,000 plus years, you know. So the longevity of, of that action of getting into country, managing country, looking after landscapes, if you think about the fundamental principles of land management, it's to create a, a predictable and a safe and a bountiful world around us. That's why we manage landscapes. And this is a cornerstone of humans, really, like the ability to think abstractly and do those sorts of things, manage for an intended purpose, has been going on for at least 200,000 years, if not prior to the evolution of Homo sapiens. So the longevity of people in, in the Australian landscape has led to a set of landscapes or the, the entire continent really wrapping itself around this important species, us humans and Aboriginal culture, the expression of Aboriginal culture, looking after landscapes and doing all those sorts of things becomes a dependency essentially. And you really notice uh, how deep this is, is when you pull Aboriginal people off country and you start to see the unravelling of the environment in response to that. There isn't an example I, don't, I know of that doesn't show a decrease in biodiversity an increase in catastrophic, say, fires and other disturbances and a degradation of many of the things that people um, recognise as integral to having healthy landscapes. I think it's, it looks, in inverted commas, uh, in a way that there are people actively performing their obligations of, of caring for the type of country they're in in the way that it needs to be cared for. And, you know, that'll vary uh, depending on which kind of system you're in. I think you'd also argue that um, healthy country, speaking to reciprocity, is um, actually healthy people as well. Oh, most definitely, and we we know this. You talk to you talk to people on country. You talk to knowledge holders. You talk to you know people who are practicing uh, traditional ways of caring for country, and you you see that you know it's often under the guise of things like um, sequestering carbon through carbon farming initiatives or doing other um, kind of putative objectives that are funding or supporting the, the move to, to care for country. But the fundamental reason that, that people are doing it is to care for country and care for themselves. And this is, done, we know this from talking to people on country, but we also know this empirically from studies done on, on things like the physical health, the mental health, 
the engagement at school, uh, substance abuse, all of these kind of metrics of um, well-being, if you like, improve when Aboriginal people are involved in caring for country or what I guess the literature calls natural resource management. And they, all of these metrics improve. And I think this doesn't only apply to Aboriginal people. This is something, a lesson we can learn and we can draw out for broader Australia in, in, the modern, in modern times. I want to go back to your research. And um, I, mean, I, I believe, and you can correct me, um, you probably you take soil core samples you probably drill down into the ground to take core samples i think you do that with trees as well and amongst probably many other uh, ways of doing research what does your research tell us yeah so essentially do I, I i drill down into soils they might be um into lakes for example i've, I've recently drilled a it's no longer a lake it filled up around eighty thousand years ago but I drilled a, a site that had lake sediments going back nearly a million years. And that's through some really large swings of environmental change uh, through to the arrival of, uh, of people into the landscape, all of these sorts of things. So by drilling down into the ground, it might be soils, lake sediments, bogs, swamps, all these sorts of things, or into a tree going from the outside into the centre of the tree going back in time, and unpacking the information that's stored in there, and my main things that I look at when I'm looking at the soils or the muds are bits of plant remains, bits of charcoal. I also look at um, some of the geochemistry. You can tell me about, so plant remains tell me about the vegetation that was growing. Charcoal tells me about the fire that was occurring. Geochemistry tells me about things like erosion and things like that, maybe flood events, all of that sort of stuff. And by piecing those, what we call proxies, you know, just like when you, you vote in proxy or you do something uh, in proxy, it's the same sort of thing. These are substitutions for, for the thing we're inferring. By looking at all these proxies together, you can get a, a reconstruction of the landscape through time and that kind of interconnectedness of various uh, processes in a landscape and how that changes through time from sort of deep time through to the present. And when you've got things like the arrival of people or the volcanic eruption or the onset of an ice age or the exit from an ice age, you can understand how landscapes respond to those really you know, large scale and sometimes small scale. And people do beetle outbreaks that defoliate trees, all these sorts of things. It's a, you're really a detective, if you like, uh, investigating the occurrences of the past. There was an article recently about the devastation of Jukin Gorge and, uh, and it was this article about which said that in an office there was a piece of tape um, in the office which was against a, a, a soil sample or something, a core sample or something similar and it went back and said, oh, 1788, this happened and, you know, 18, you know and Napoleon was here and it kept going back and that was in the first inch to the right and then it went all the way back to about a metre around or more, two metres to the left where it was, you know, first settlement uh, by Indigenous people or, or where they'd first registered in the sample. Um, I think core sample, I mean, I can't imagine what looking at a million year, years in a core sample is like. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. You know, it's such an exciting feeling. You know, like there's not a person who doesn't come out into the field and, and watch us pull up this stuff who doesn't just sort of start immediately thinking, wow, you know, like this is some really deep time stuff here. And it really, it does, it contextualises all the things that you're thinking about, you know. Another thing I think it really impresses upon the longevity that, that people have been in, in this country for. And, you know, I quite often have a chat to traditional owners and by listening to songlines and, and oral traditions, they're hardwired in, in knowledge of country in this country. Uh, stories that, that uh, map, you know, the exit out of the last ice age and the rise of sea levels by 150 metres, you know, like freshwater sites that are way off coastline now, 
all these sorts of changes. And I know no other tradition, written or oral, that in it has hardwired information that goes back 20,000 years, 30,000 years. It's, it's really gobsmacking. You know? So you, there's a few things there that I think you, you come across occasionally and you go, wow, this is the depth of time that is uh, Aboriginal people have been in this landscape. But also, as you say, drilling back a million years, it's, you know, it's really quite awe-inspiring. What's happened to our physical environment since colonisation? It's a good question. Uh, a lot of things. Um, we know from the reports in early explorers and, and surveyors and things that the, there's a whole bunch of different things. At first, I guess I'll start with is the soils are remarkably different. There are areas today that are really high, highly compacted soils where it was written that horses couldn't walk through because the soils were so, so friable. You know, they'd be up to their knees or whatever equivalent of a horse's knee is. Uh, being able to walk, they just couldn't do it. They'd have to get off the horse and help the horse through. And these were areas where there were yams, you know, these sort of rootstock vegetables that Aboriginal people were cultivating. Um, there are areas that were described and which my uh, data shows that are now forested, be that rainforest in Tasmania or eucalypt forest on the mainland, that were forest-free. They, they, were, they were grasslands under Aboriginal management. And we know one of the things that Aboriginal people did was to maintain open landscapes with fire to care for country, but also to increase green pick for animals, to increase grains, all these sorts of things. There are a whole suite of species that Aboriginal people use in this country that depend on fire at some stage in their life cycle. Um, there's salinization that's happened since we've moved away from traditional crops. And, you know, there's examples of tons of grain being found, of fields of grains and all of this sort of stuff, a heavy reliance on Aboriginal people on grains, much as most people do around the world today to make breads and things. We've moved away from those and we've put in crops and things that depend on a different kind of uh, process to grow them, which is irrigation. And that's caused our soils to become salinized. There's a whole series of issues that are associated with the removal of Aboriginal management of country and the imposition of European management paradigms. And the fish deaths uh, in the Darling River, for example, all those sorts of things, which are a combination of climate change and nutrient loading from uh, erosion of soils into these systems. All these sort of compounding effects has given us a whole slew of really major environmental problems that we face today that can be traced back to the British invasion and the removal of Aboriginal people from managing country. One of the concepts you brought up in the recent NAM oration uh, that almost lit I mean, literally blew my mind um, is this idea of the concept of wilderness. Um, and if it's possible, I wouldn't mind um, having you, this is going to be odd, you're going to read a transcript of the oration. Uh, so apologies for that. But if you can, I'd love to you to read that, uh, that small para. Um, yeah, okay. Um, country is more diverse when people are managing it. When people are on country, managing country. This is not a wilderness, this is people's country, and it's healthier when people are practising their culture and managing country. If we'd lock people out, which in some sectors of the wilderness conservation movement seek to do, you destroy country. You destroy the very biodiversity that is wrapped around nearly 68,000 years of management of country. This is what happens when you lock people out. This is the ideology of wilderness, which destroys country in Australia. Thank you. The ideology of wilderness. Look, I've I've always looked to the conservation movement, and I'm I'm a conservationist myself um, of sorts, and I'm a hiker, and I love the idea of wilderness. But this idea that wilderness presupposes that humans haven't been in country managing land that uh, in the first place is inherently racist, and it just it occurred to me was yesterday, uh, thanks to your work. Um, do you want to talk through that a bit about this this ideology? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, it is. It's an idea born from a particular culture at a particular time. Um, you know, it was developed in the wilds, I think, of, uh, of Wales or something like that in the wilderness, which, ironically, the name given by the English to the home, okay, the forest managed by the Welsh. So there's a denial of human agency right at the core of this, this very myth, if you like. And it, if you look at the etymology of the word, it, it basically means landscape in absentia of humans. You know, like it, you can redefine and, and try and do what you want with it through time, but the meaning of the word means without human activity or intervention. And essentially, this denies the role that Aboriginal people have had in maintaining, not only maintaining, but creating the very landscapes which we call wilderness. So for example, the Tasmanian Wilderness World Heritage Area is not a wilderness at all. My whole PhD focused on using Western science to debunk the myth of wilderness, if you like. And that landscape prior to the arrival of people, would have been completely rainforested. The arrival of people burning uh, through the last ice age into the present, uh, what we call interglacial, or the climate that's sort of broadly similar today, resulted in the landscape that you see there, which is dominated by treeless, fire-promoted vegetation, buttongrass moorland. It's a cultural landscape. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. So the, the moniker that we give it as a wilderness is, is dehumanising. You know, it fails and it, it actively denies humanity of the people who created that landscape. And I think, you know, people aren't, I'm not accusing people of the conservation movement and wilderness movement of walking around and, and not recognising the humanity of Aboriginal people. Quite often they're our greatest allies, in, in, at least in conversation. But the very notion of kind of zero footprint, of removing people from country and it'll be better, all of this sort of stuff is one of the reasons or one of the contributing factors to the unravelling, the environmental unravelling of Australia. If you look at Madhu Country in the Deserts and the latest attempt to redefine wilderness, you know, it was published in an esteemed journal in 2018, identified a series of, of um, the last patches of wilderness on earth right on Madhu Country, right on country that's been managed for millennia by uh, Madhu people in the central deserts of Australia. You know? And from the parts of that country where people were actively removed um, that have been left unmanaged, if you compare the biological health, the biodiversity, and the disturbance regimes, the wildfire uh, regimes from that country versus country that Madhu have continued to manage for millennia, there's just no comparison. The unmanaged country is less biodiverse, is subjected to, to larger, more catastrophic fires, all of these sorts of things, whereas Madhu country is healthy. It's healthy by all the biological indicators that the conservation movement seeks to or purports as being healthy. So it's just a lie, essentially, that that these areas are the wilderness. And all it does is deny another narrative that denies the key role, the key cultural role and key environmental role that Aboriginal people have in this country. It, it almost wants to ignore um, that agency for a selfish need to believe in the sublime of you and the wonder of nature by yourselves. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, I see it in, in the later works of David Attenborough, you know, like he's just so self-hating, I would call it. No, but it's, it's, a, it's hating of a particular culture, you know, a culture that has basically screwed things, you know, for greed and all of these other reasons. And it, it does cause significant damage. But then it's cultural imperialism to think that all humans do the same kind of, play the same kind of role and have the same kind of methodologies. And quite often the sustainable approaches that people are kind of promoting are the very practices that the people they're denying exist actually perform, you know, like it's sustainable living. And this isn't just in Australia. This happens in the Amazon. It happens in Southeast Asia, happens in Africa, happens all over the shop where Indigenous peoples are denied a, um, humanity, denied the, the knowledge that in most cases has led to the very biodiversity that these people are trying to protect. 
You know, and it's really wrong-headed. It's, it's actually dangerous, I think, not only to the environment but to people. I think there's enough reason for, um, well, let's call it white people to be self-hating, to be honest, a little bit. It's not necessarily healthy. You've got to get beyond that. But, I mean, we've all got to change our frameworks and the way we look at things. I'm going to change the way I look at I mean, I still want to be by myself when I'm out walking and hiking. However, I'm, I'm not going to expect a certain thing from now on. Um, oh, for sure. And, you know, one of the biggest um, kickbacks, that it doesn't happen anymore, they went ahead anyway, but in Kakadu, which, you know, you compare Kakadu to Arnhem Land and, and it's a bit of a clapped out country, really. Like Arnhem Land is pretty healthy because people have been managing it and they're returning to country for various reasons now in Arnhem Land. And Kakadu is getting better. One of the biggest pushbacks on, on cultural burning in, in Kakadu was that tourists didn't want to see smoke. You know, it wasn't what they expected to see when they were travelling through that country. You know, like it was initially it was a real big pushback because we have to change our perceptions. We have to move away from notions that there are discrete fire seasons in Australia where fire will occur and it doesn't occur any other time. No, you burn year round. You burn in the right place at the right time. Then you avoid the big wood pile that you've ignored for five years out the back there catching on fire and burning down a quarter of the country or whatever it is that the, the black summer bushfires burnt. You know, like it's, and this needs to be a lasting change, not just a lip service change if we're to make any, any difference whatsoever, a change in the way that we view the world around us. You, you say that fire has been critical in shaping who we are and you call us fire hominids. You say we are a fire organism. What do you mean by that? Oh, we, we most definitely are. The earliest evidence of, of um, hominids, I won't say humans because it was probably Australopithecines or one of our progenitors, using fire was about 1.7 million years ago. Now, that's a long time. Homo sapiens have been around, that's us, that's modern humans, that's Aboriginal people, European people, native uh, peoples all over the world. Everybody around today is a Homo sapien, anatomically exactly the same and virtually genetic, genetically identical, obviously, with difference. Um, but as a species... We've been around for 200,000 years. So, you know, our first sort of mastery, if you like, of fire was, was in the form of capturing fire that had been lit naturally, you know, for lightning strike or whatever, and, and using that. And then through time, we, we learned how to ignite fires. And through that, we learned that we could ignite areas outside of when they might usually burn. So we manipulated the timing of fires, where fires would occur, uh, and this became sort of more and more sophisticated through time and we're changing the season of fires right up till modern day where we change the arraignment of fuels across the landscape through logging and all of these sorts of things. And if you think about it, the greatest, I use greatest in inverted commas, but the greatest invention, if you like, of the modern age that has propelled uh, humans the most is the combustion engine, which is a complete mastery of fire. Like it is it is the mastery of the combustion process to create energy and electricity and all these sorts of things. But not only is it a, pro a, a sequence of us or a process of us mastering fire, that incorporation of fire into our ritual and routine has changed us irrevocably. It's um, before the mastery of fire, we were a diurnal creature, if you like, a, a, that was you know awake during the daylight hours. And you know, you know yourself, if you go camping, you can't light a fire. You're not in bed late and you haven't got a torch. You're not sitting up. But add a fire into the mix and you're sitting up until who knows what time in the morning or, or night sort of chatting and you can't do much. You can't wander around in the landscape to do much. So most of your stuff is talking, you know, and that's, that went hand in hand with the evolution of our brain and maximising the, the cranial capacity that we had, abstract thought, planning, doing all this sort of stuff, those extra social hours. And you look at um, studies that have been done, most of those after dark social interactions are, are wrapped around stories and planning and mythology and things like this, these abstract things that really 
push the envelope of our brain. Uh, it changed the kinds of food we eat and it being able to cook food released more energy from it, which is really important if you're walking around with this hugely energy demanding brain. You know, we've got the greatest ratio between body size and cranial capacity out of any organism. And that requires a significant energy input. And we got that by cooking food. Uh, there are all sorts of influences over our reproductive cycle, our physiology, our teeth didn't need to be so sharp because we had sort of more chewable foods. There's an argument that it got us out of, out of a arboreal habit because we had more protection on land, all these sorts of things. There's, there's all of these things. So we, our evolutionary tra uh, trajectory is inextricably linked, linked to fire. But here we are letting fires now get out of control. So how is fire management now going wrong? Well, I think, um, you know, I'm obviously a person who, who deals with time, so I always take a bit of a historical lens here. There are various biophysical environments on Earth where fire is more important than others, you know, as a, as a sort of a natural, you're sort of a non-human process. You know, there's flammable landscapes and there's inflammable landscapes. The dominant culture that, that spread across in the, in the wave of European invasions across the Earth came from a place where, where fire wasn't as common in the landscape. Uh, fire had kind of taken on a role as to keep you warm um, and to cook your food. And, yeah, without sort of being too expletive, it was, oh, oh my, the fire's going to burn me, you know, like this sort of really dichotomy between what fire is. That, that dominant, that culture spread across the earth uh, into landscapes where people had maintained a really strong association with fire and, and landscapes required fire and to be in their, the state that they're in. You look at, there's an argument that the um, depeopling of the Americas resulted in that much uh, tree growth that it drew down enough carbon out of the atmosphere to cool the earth, you know, like... This isn't just in Australia. This is all over the place of people. You know, it's really Europe's the odd one out here in the way that it used fire. But that, we're living in that, that dominant paradigm right now, you know, and we have this siege mentality, if you like, against fire. We have this misbelief that we can, we can fight fire. I mean, look at our agencies. They're firefighters, aren't they? They build containment lines. They've got brigades. They've got military structures for their organisation. It's all built around the belief that you can fight and win a war against fire, you know, which you can't, you know, like the biggest ally in the Australian landscape when it comes to fire is fire itself. And yet we probably fear it. So what would you like to see change? There's a rough, there's so much knowledge out there. There's this myth, okay, there's a, that we're dealing with myths all the time, really. Say, for example, the genocide in Tasmania. That genocide, it never happened in Tasmania. You know, like there was an attempted genocide, but there are still knowledge holders in Tasmania. There are still knowledge holders and people sitting on vast amounts of knowledge all across Australia, Aboriginal people, who for various reasons, whether it be because the missions beat it out of them and beat their, tried to beat their culture out of them, are a bit reticent in just sitting out and sprouting off about it, you know. If you sit down and talk to, with people, there's knowledge about how to, there's a, you can build up a safe operating manual. You know what I mean? SOP, sorry, is the, is the, the HNS term now. It's a safe operating procedure of how to live in Australia and what you need to do to maintain country. And so what you do when you, when you burn, and my big thing is fire, and there's, you know, Aboriginal people also altered waterways and did all these sorts of things, is that you are made, you, by burning at the right time throughout a year, not just in certain times of the year, and throughout country, you can protect areas you don't want to burn. You know, there might be spear grass, there might be trees that have honey in them, all these sorts of things that you don't want to burn. In other areas, you're burning and you're keeping it open. That's easy to walk through, but it also reduces the fire risk and fuel loads, all of these sorts of things. It requires work. The work that I've done in Tasmania shows that within a decade of pulling Aboriginal people off country, rainforest jumped out and expanded across the landscape you know, in the areas that I looked at. 
you know, this was country that was kept open for millennia. You know, so they were working that hard to hold back the wave of rainforest expansion to keep it open. You know, and this is happening all over Australia. So draw on that knowledge where you can, add that knowledge into the existing toolkit, into the prescribed burning, into the containment lines, into all the other things that you're doing that consider the modern world is different than what it was like in 1788. But the problem is all of the things we do now and all the things that were recommended in the Bushfire Royal Commission or the Royal Commission International Disaster Arrangements just perpetuate the, the same. It's saying, oh, more effort needs to be put into combating and battling fire, more effort needs to be put into this kind of methodology of protecting assets and all this sort of stuff. And it ignores the vast areas of country in between those high-priced areas where you need to manage. You need to get in there and you need to manage. And in some areas, maybe it's gone too far for Aboriginal people to wrestle back in control just with with burning and you have to use different kind of technologies. But where we see people who are cultural burning um, in the 2019-2020 bushfires, there was a lower impact of those bushfires in that country. You know, we know it works. We know it works in the top end. We know it works. We know it works you know, in most places. We just, I'd like to see it added to our toolkit and Aboriginal knowledge be res- respected. N- knowing how hard it is to make um, great poli- policy decisions in the bureaucracy and you know, they try, is there a danger that one type of burning, cultural burning, may become more popular than another? And I guess my question is connected to the fact that there are many tribal groups across you know, this country that have different practices. Um, so fire stick burning might be great in one place but not in another, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is there a danger? I mean, am I think overthinking this, uh, uh, that there's a danger that one becomes more popular than another? I think, um, no, no, it's, it's a valid point. The, the answer is you get the people whose country it is to do the management, you know. There's the myth that Aboriginal people are one homogenous unit. We're not, you know, like they were vastly different. There are, you know, there are languages that, that are nothing alike, you know, that just reflects the depth of difference in, in this country right across the, the, the continent. So the, the trick is there is to reawaken local knowledge and get local people on country to do the work. But that's the only way forward because you can't, you know, you can pull out philosophies and ideas out of different places and translocate them, but that's probably what's caused us a lot of problems that we've got now is, is importing, you know, inappropriate philosophical paradigms and management regimes. Whereas we need to look to the country that we're in and talk to the traditional owners. And in the circumstance where there might not be the continuance of knowledge because colonisation was so effective, then you just got to roll your sleeves up and experiment, you know, like and Aboriginal knowledge is, is science as much as it is anything else. It's, it's observation, experiment, you know, you observe, you experiment, you observe the, re- the result of that experiment and you hone your, your experiment the, the way, all the way along. And that's, that's what science is. It's kind of repeating and observing and changing and repeating and observing. So there's perceived barriers there of, of knowledge integrity, which uh, in many cases is not true. But in the cases where it is, there's ways around it, you know, like it just requires um, a bit of conviction. Finally, um, let's say we're looking out over a piece of country, um, or let's say I'm looking out over a piece of country. What do you want me to consider? I think the most pertinent, if I can put you into a type of country to, to narrow the scope, when you're driving through the bush, for example, have a look at the bush. And if you see, and I'll use a scientific term here, and a, then, a, then a kind of non-scientific, more uh, what you might get off an Aboriginal person. If you see a high connectivity between the ground and the canopy of fuels, yeah? So if you see uh, ladder fuels, if you like, if you imagine fires start on the ground and the only way they get in the canopy where they cause really big problems 
is by having a, a series of fuels that they can then connect up with. Now, fires don't really burn on, on bark that well up a tree, unless it's that kind of tree. If you see that, that's what a lot of Aboriginal people call is sick country. You know, it's not what you might look at with your romantic eyes and your European eyes saying, oh, look at that bush, you know, it's untouched, it's great, you know, like da-da-da-da-da. That's actually sick country. And I want you to think that the biodiversity and the species that you know that are Australian, that, that you recognise as Australian, that you might be worried about um, because we've got the highest rate of biodiversity loss on Earth at the moment, are all here, if not because, then definitely doing really, really well under 60-odd thousand years of Aboriginal management. And the country looked very much different. And that one of the reasons we might be losing them is because we've let the country get like this. And I'm sick of driving through bush, especially in southeast Australia, where you can't see more than five or ten metres because all the shrubs are so thick and dense and you can't walk through them. A, it's a tinderbox. B, it's just sick country. It's not healthy. The very biodiversity that we love and appreciate in this country is the direct product of Aboriginal management. Associate Professor Michael Sean Fletcher, thank you so much for the conversation. All right. Thanks for having me, Steve. Thank you to Associate Professor Michael Sean Fletcher, Director of Research Capability at the Indigenous Knowledge Institute and Assistant Dean Indigenous in the Faculty of Science, University of Melbourne. And thanks to Steve Grimwade. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on November 25, 2020. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.